It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Hello and welcome to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, the award-winning podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine that offers you a weekly escape into the British countryside for uplifting adventures, conversations with interesting folk and some memorable encounters with wildlife. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine. In this episode seven of season six of the podcast, we meet journalist Lucy Jones who has written a fantastic book called Losing Eden, which brings together many strands of research that shows how the health of our minds, hearts and bodies is linked to our connection with nature and wild environments. As we'll discover, Lucy's quest was sparked by her own experiences in finding asylum in nature. Lucy is speaking to our own Jude Rogers. Lucy Jones began her working life not writing about nature at all, Instead, she wrote about music for the NME and various newspapers like the Daily Telegraph. But then she had a conversion. She wrote Foxes Unearthed, which won the Society of Authors Roger Deakin Awards in 2015. And then she embarked on her biggest project yet, the wonderful book Losing Eden, which was published earlier this year. It looks at how nature makes us calmer, healthier, happier, even kinder. This book is engaging adventurous, a real thrill to read. Let's go back to where your love of nature began. As an adult, you had quite a different life at the start of your working life, but um, what was your relationship to nature at the beginning? Well, I was always one of those kind of gathering, collecting type of young children. So I'd have a like plastic box, had a blue lid and I'd collect ladybirds or aphids or snails and just get as many of them in there as possible. Um, So I was quite keen on the kind of gathering side of things. I grew up in the Thames Valley. Uh, My dad's a teacher, so we grew up in a school which had quite nice ground. So I was really lucky that I could kind of roam around. Well, it was kind of playing fields and so on. But there was was a little um, brook, a little river with some bridges over it, which I enjoyed exploring. And then you know what, yesterday I had this, this, I smelt some clover. I just picked up a pink clover from, from the side of the road and it brought me back immediately to smelling clover as a child. 
we went it's like smell is like so so evocative isn't it um we went on holiday to france um when i was a kid and one one trip really stands out i think we were stand, staying in the alps and we were staying next to a wildflower meadow and I, I must have been seven or eight at the time and i just remember being able to kind of go and just roam around this meadow and smell the clover i remember smelling the clover and listening to the crickets and the grasshoppers um and just kind of lying there and, and experiencing it. So I was really fortunate that I had those opportunities to connect with the natural world because my parents were quite into it too. And my grandparents lived in Scotland in the middle of nowhere. So when we went up there, I could kind of roam around and and look for things. But then I think like like the majority of people, when I got to about 11, 12, 13, my uh, head was turned by you know, <laughs> music and pubs and, and identity <laughs> creation and so on. So I had a kind of dormancy period for quite a while, actually. That does happen, though, doesn't it? You've taken me back to um, when I was in school and, well, I, when I smell wild garlic now where I live in the Welsh countryside, I'm taken back to my geography field trips to the Eelston River near Swansea and um but um and when I was in my early teens and trying to convince myself that I found this quite boring because like yes similarly I preferred getting posters out of my music magazines or whatever but um mm-hmm. you do, in a way you never lose that connection even if you're you're denying that connection you know as your early career um goes you you're working for music magazines and living in a very different environment in London tell us about how you moved from that experience that very different life to coming back to nature there's a direct connection between the two isn't there yeah I'd I'd had quite a kind of pretty hectic urban life in London and about the age of 27 I was recovering from clinical depression and I'd gone into recovery for addiction four things really helped psychotherapy psychiatry and medicine um the support of my friends and family but the fourth thing was was a bit more mysterious so I had I had quite a a bit more time on my hands you know I was used to just going out every night and kind of sleeping through the weekends really but you know I found myself kind of awake on a Saturday morning and trying to keep myself busy to adapt to a sober life and I was living in Clapton in London at the time and I decided to start running you know because I knew that that had endorphin benefits to kind of steady myself in Walthamstow marshes uh, and the kind of meadow wetlands around there and I found that my runs would often become kind of walk runs because I <laughs> become so interested in looking at the kind of trees and plants and river life, uh, the wildlife, the skies. And it became like a kind of urgent, urgent need to to get there every day. It, afterwards, I felt kind of very soothed, very calmed. It was almost like the mind-altering substances that I'd been using to kind of medicate my own mental health issues at the time. And I, 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 I'd kind of known that you know, being in nature or walking by the sea or in the woods might be a good thing to do in some way. And that there was a link to feeling better after 
being outside, but I'd never anticipated how powerful that could be um, and how I might kind of grow to rely on it. So that sent me on a kind of this inquiry, which became Losing Eden, to to try and drill down into how and why spending time in the living world can make a difference to our minds, our brains, our bodies. Uh, since that point, which I think was eight eight years ago, I've it, it's been a really important relationship for me spending time with the living world. What I really love about your book is that you talk about how nature can be restorative. How everyone, regardless of what demographic they're in, should have that connection to the land. Tell us about how you you started um, this project. Um, you know, it's not just I went into the countryside and I felt better. It's let's look at the great wealth of scientific information out there, environmental studies, there's a lot to grapple with. How did you cope with that when you were looking at it at the beginning? Well, I think because the genesis of the idea was was this kind of personal curiosity of wanting to know exactly what was going on in my own mind and body, that kind of gave me the drive and the impetus. I've always been one of those irritating kind of nosy people who's always asking why why but why why (laughs) so it was you know it was really like satisfying fulfilling to to drill down and get under the hood and and try and kind of examine this relationship between nature and people I mean it's kind of an absurd project to take on I mean it's such a grand grand thing like nature and the psyche and obviously I haven't I've just scratched the surface of it and there are so many questions left and many 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 books could be written on this subject um but I felt that I had a very simple understanding of the living world and the emotional world of humans. And as soon as I started to look into it, it was such fortuitous timing because I walked into this vast, varied, fascinating field of uh, nature and health uh, science, basically. So many, many scientists in various disciplines, from psychologists to neuroscientists, endocrinologists, to environmental kind of social cognitive psychologists um, have been trying to measure uh, the relationship between humans and nature and, and work out what, what's going on. And of course, why then, you know, if it, if it is such a, such a link, which Losing Eden, I think, shows it is, why aren't we doing more to protect, protect nature? And that just afforded me so many different avenues to go down and conferences to attend. You know, a lot of Losing Eden is is just me amplifying the most interesting work by these amazing scientists. But then I guess there were two other threads which came in quite quickly. The first was that in reconnecting with nature, I I, I fell into, I guess, a state of ecological grief and realizing how much we were losing and and what was happening in the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis so that also felt like an interesting area and question to address you know not just how does spending time in nature affect our minds but how does living in a world that we are essentially destroying affect our minds and then the second spread was I suppose I came there's lots of amazing science, lots of amazing studies, but it didn't entirely answer all my questions. I kind of got to the end of the road. Um, and that's when the book turns into a, maybe a slightly more, goes down slightly more weirder avenues or kind of queerer avenues of trying to work out 
how nature affects the spirit, you know, things that we can't quantify. Um, and that took me to a walk with the chief druid and to looking into the work of ecotherapists and environmental psychologists who talk about the kind of the psychic harm that living on this planet might be doing. I wanted to look at nature and, and human mental health through through lots of different prisms to answer my question. And it was a really interesting period of research for me and and I still feel like I'm kind of in it because I don't feel like I've put it down and I have answered my questions like there's still a lot of things that I'm interested in and and I you know from doing the research and looking at the evidence base I am convinced that um, a connection and opportunities to connect with a healthy natural environment from kind of clean air and clean water to the opportunities to connect with other species must be, you know, a central tenet of a of a healthy society. And I don't really see that in our in our world at the moment. So yeah, it was quite tricky to to write with a little baby. Um, I'm amazed you did that. Well done on that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of interesting encounters in this book. Um, tell us about the Druid. I want to know more about the Druid. One thing that's interesting is you've got this very open, curious mind about its links to you know, ancient religion as well as the most cutting edge science. Yeah, I kind of wanted to, yeah, I wanted to look at the subject. I guess half, maybe more than half of the book is science, but there is also a lot of other, other stranger, more kind of esoteric avenues. So yeah, that took me to the South Downs with the chief druid, Philip Cargom. We had a lovely windy walk with skylarks overhead and he's been the chief druid in this country for about 30 years. He's just set, stepped down recently. Um, and he's also a psychotherapist. So he had an interesting, interesting experience in, in, in that work. It's quite funny talking to someone like that because, you know, I say, I would like to interview you about nature and mental health. And, you know, for some people, that's quite a weird even link. I mean, it is definitely more talked about now. But I think a few years ago, you know, people weren't really discussing that as a kind of relationship. But for someone like the Chief Druid, that's just so imbued in Druidry you know, <laughs> that having a connection with the living world is like essential for good human psychological health. He described it quite well to me by saying, looking at back at um, the, the influential kind of psychological thinkers of the last 100 or 200 years, you know, Freud came along and he said, it's all about the sex stuff. And like, no one had thought about that before, but then it became like so obvious. And then Jung came along and said, you know, it's all about the archetypes and, you know, people didn't, hadn't thought about that before. And he, you know, he was saying you know, that's going to have to happen at some point with, with the nature and the living world and you know, how we treat it. Like we're in this kind of denial or delusion that our relationship with our environment doesn't impact on our spirits our souls our brains our psyches but it must it, it, it you know it does it must do and I think we're just starting to realize that I remember I was in some therapy after and this bell of postnatal depression after my baby was born and I remember saying to my therapist my it was a CBT on the NHS therapist talking about so how worried I was about climate change and you know thinking about what was it, what the world would be like in 40 years for for my daughter and that's something that terrified has terrified me the last few years, you know, thinking about how unstable the world would be. She kind of just looked, she she didn't really engage. She's a great therapist, but she didn't engage in that. It wasn't a thing that 
we was obviously going to be talked about in that session. And I think that probably that was about three years ago. Now, um, eco-anxiety, eco-grief and, and, and that kind of, those feelings are probably more, more, more discussed. In terms of the other encounters you've had, what were your favourites or the most revealing to you? I went to Svalbard, um, which is quite a weird thing to do, uh, to visit the, the seed vault. So in Svalbard, they have this incredibly sci-fi looking thing jutting out of one of the glaciers. And it is a door to a global seed vault, which contains seeds from countries across the world for the safekeeping in the face of climate change, nuclear war apocalypse etc that was a really fascinating trip for two reasons one I wanted to go to Svalbard because it's actually like the nearest wilderness to us it's actually in Europe it's kind of still in the Arctic Circle but it's near Norway and I wanted to see how it would feel to be in a kind of wilderness area it was incredibly beautiful the light was like pink and gold it was like being on another planet but I got there and I was so naive. I thought I'd just be able to wander into the wilderness. (laughs) And then I saw on the hotel a sign saying, you can't leave the perimeter unless you have a gun because of the polar bears. Uh, It it kind of just showed me my naivety around. Yeah, you don't want to cross a polar bear really, do you? Not not ideal. (laughs) Um, And the second thing was kind of thinking about this, this seed vault as a kind of symbol for for where we, where we are and where we've got to, um, that we have to keep keep things in a vault, which actually flooded anyway last year. So that was that was an that was an interesting trip. I think that a lot of the encounters that I had over the writing of it, of my own experiences with nature in in the countryside, and it was almost like a, it was quite a, a cool process because I'd read some amazing study about how fractal shapes impact the brain and you know activate areas of the brain associated with positive feelings and then I would go on a walk and I'd go oh wow there's fractals everywhere and you know spot fractals on in the cracks of the pavements and so on or I'd be learning about attention restoration theory um, which is a, a concept developed by the environmental psychologist the Kaplans and essentially in brief it's the idea that um, nature is a a good environment to kind of give our brains a rest to kind of to relax from cognitive fatigue so I'd go out and kind of stare at a tree in the wind (laughs) know that you know there's actually some interesting theories about why we do you know when you sometimes go in a trance looking at trees and that would be actually giving my my mind my mind's a break and a rest. It was really cool to be reading about all this research and then have encounters where I could see it happening. And although saying that, I did have a, a dark period when I was quite ill with postnatal depression when I didn't feel anything in the natural spaces I would normally have gone to for restoration. That was a really frightening experience. Um, and thankfully, I with help I, I got through it but it also taught me the important thing which an important thing which is you know, that nature can't be kind of curable or mm, yeah it's not like go into the woods ditch your pills like it's really clear to me that um as someone who gets depression I also need medication and so on 
but that contact with nature is is a kind of it's a it's like eating vegetables or having a good like night's sleep for me like the other day I had to make a really a, a decision so I went to a river a flowing river just to sit there and look at it and and the trees and the wind because I knew that that could give my my brain a, a break and mm. kind of focus me in a different way so yeah it's an ongoing process it's it, it's an exciting journey because it doesn't feel like it's over one thing I wanted to talk about too is how even though this is a book called Losing Eden and it's a book about how nature makes us happier and healthier, it doesn't suggest that it can solve everything. That's been an interesting development in nature writing in recent years, I think, that it's not just you walk up a mountain and have an epiphany you, um, and that's the way it is. It's, um, you know, nature can sometimes be wild and frightening and scary and that's okay as well. It can not always be like a wonderful comfort blanket. But also you look about how the lack of access um, some people can have to parts of nature and how good it is for children, um, people who might be in, people who might be in impoverished social groups. Um, and you're, so it's not just about you and your connection, it's about this in a wider sense for people who may not be considered in nature writing as much. Was that really important for you to get in the book? It was. I feel that, um, inequality of access to the natural world is rife and you know it's a stain on our society that like the way the way our societies are set up not everyone um can access those restorative and stress relieving um or that that stress relieving relationship um with the living world whether that be through literal lack of physical access so there are more parks, for example, in affluent areas compared to deprived areas, you know, or people not, not having access to gardens, to kind of more deep-seated barriers um, which prevent people from feeling comfortable in, in natural spaces. I spent some time in Losing Eden talking about some studies that came out of Chicago in the 90s, looking at the Robert Taylor Homes, which is a kind of vast um, project with thousands of people living there and these environmental psychologists um, studied the difference between one side which had absolutely no trees no nature it was just a kind of desert of asphalt and concrete and the other side which did have some trees they found lots of things but in short they found out that just the presence of a few trees improved the lives of the residents it made them more likely to of have uh, community bonds they talk and play under the trees you know provide shade and areas for socializing the trees also provided the stress relieving benefits that the science is now showing us which would have impacts on kind of social relationships and so on and people have been building on that evidence since that point and showing you know that street trees greenery uh, high quality biodiverse natural green spaces have these measurable impacts on people and often studies show that those from deprived backgrounds might benefit even more from them because kind of affluent uh, societies uh, communities might be able to kind of pay for access to other places uh, you know holidays or so on in nature one of the most exciting and beautiful concepts I came across was at a, a conference in Germany the work of Richard Mitchell and Frank Popham on this concept of equigenesis so that is this idea that green spaces are equigenetic so they studied some communities in the northeast which despite having socio-economic disadvantages were actually 
surprisingly resilient. And they found that the, the factor in that was that their access to nature and green space. So they concluded in a big study in The Lancet that access to green space connection with nature could be an important factor in decreasing the health gap between the rich and the poor. It could make society more equitable. And that seems incredibly important. That was 2008 and not you know, not much has been done to, to look at those areas, I think. You know, and, and also children and education, I think visiting forest schools and outdoor nurseries and looking into that movement was really exciting and hopeful. But I also saw that, you know, so many kids don't have the opportunities to kind of commune with the living world. And, you know, teachers are obviously massively stressed, impressed. But like, I think there's a deep absence in our education system, our maybe philosophy of education, which which doesn't bring in the you know the rest of the living world, uh, which we know now you know from from the science that a relationship with nature has these huge psychological impacts that kind of can last through life. Yeah, I mean the science was just telling me that that's where that's what I needed to write about. It's so it's really unfair. It's about stretching out the benefits of nature to to everyone for the benefit of all, to, including nature itself. Um, just to finish, I wanted to ask you what your favourite experience ever personally has been with nature, whether that is seeing a particular bird on a walk or a particular morning or moment that you've had. Wow, that's a really good big question. Um, I feel like I have every time I go out I have her experience and it's not you know it's not seeing occasionally I might see a kingfisher or a deer but often for me I find kind of awe and wonder in in small everyday things um in like moss and lichen and the weeds uh air quotes uh on the street seed heads um a couple of days ago, I found a seed head. I think it was Jerusalem sage, and it's it's like a shape of stars. So I've never seen that before. It's like a constellation of stars and a seed head. I think one of the I've had some really good swims in the rivers in Hampshire, um, and I was swimming. And it, it was a really important part of my recovery in the last few years from postnatal depression, swimming in cold water in the rivers. And I think I had one had one swim and it was it was in May and and there were so many mayflies kind of pirouetting around me and it's so kind of beautiful and tragic the mayfly because you know they only last for a day and they look like like characters from a pantomime or something they're kind of they look like they glow in the dark yeah and then then a kingfisher came through um yeah and there were damselflies but I think it's hard to pick one because I feel like I'm on a beginning of a journey that will hopefully last in my life where what was once green wallpaper and I wouldn't, I don't know anything really of what I was looking at. Everything's coming, coming to life to me. So every season I'm learning more and seeing more and noticing more, or taking the time to, to look and see properly. I, yeah, I would say my favourite my favourite moments have been those probably more ordinary ones where Mm. you see magic in a crack in a pavement and some lichen that looks like goblets or (laughs) red velvet spiders. 
they're so amazing they're so yeah right <laughs> and it's the fact that yeah. you can't plan for these things as well I guess we've got some amazing poppies that have just started growing in our garden behind a LPG gas tank this year there's never been poppies there before you know it's wow. like how has that happened and you know it's that yeah. the unexpected isn't it um your book is full of this stuff it's really wonderful read and um I'm guessing if this journey is continuing then um we'll be reading more from you on this subject in the future that's the plan I hope Wow, so much food for thought there and some powerful insights into the value of the natural universe in our daily lives. It's welcome scientific confirmation for those of us who love the wild outdoors, that it's a necessity and not a luxury. Thank you to Lucy Jones for giving us her time. Her book, Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild, is published by Alan Lane and is absolutely essential reading. Thank you also to Jude Rogers for providing the questions. As ever, please do leave feedback about the podcast and you can contact me, Fergus Collins. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. I look forward to reading your thoughts and I try to respond to everybody. And some of the best emails will appear in the printed version of Countryfile magazine. The Countryfile magazine podcast or podcast is produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.